I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 13th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about various New England patriots declaring they won't make the trip to Donald Trump's White House. We'll also discuss a couple of bizarre scenes at NBA arenas, the first in Oklahoma City, where Thunder fans greeted Kevin Durant with all manner of cupcake imagery, and the second in New York, where former Nick Charles Oakley got kicked out of Madison Square Garden after a contretemps with owner James Dolan. Finally, we'll chat with Kyle Allen, the basketball coach at Pine City High School in Pine City, Minnesota, which is revolutionizing the way the game is played. Stefan Fatsis, the author of No One Gassed Up the Truck, How Hope, Hype, and Poor Attention to Detail Shaped the XFL, is out sick this week. Feel better, Stefan. Joining me here in Washington, D.C., making his fourth all-time fill-in appearance is Washington Post columnist and internet sports blogger Dan Steinberg. Congratulations on joining the Four Timers Club. Is it, I was going to say, where do I rank on the standings now? Mina Kimes has four. I looked because I thought there might be a follow-up question. I think maybe you're tied. For first? Maybe for first. Wow. And that, and that official count does not include all the times he started the show in character as Dan Snyder. This is a reference to Alec Baldwin, who's hosted Saturday Night Live 17 times. Thank you. <laughs> it was even better once the reference was explained. Uh, with us from New York is Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. And you're going to have to just slow it down because we're a little groggy this morning, Mike. Okay. Um, I, I noted that Stefan's not here. He still gets the book plugs in. I hope that will not only be extended to me, but also Dan. When, when he's not here, as a four-time host, he should get a couple of <laughs> what we call ghost plugs. I have zero books to plug, but I did write a, a piece about George Mason's point guard today. Nothing but readers on that one. Was it a good piece? Well, you like plug a, Stefan's books. Like a B minus? 
C plus B for web traffic. It's a straight F, but I was kind of <laughs> interested in it. All right, I'll, readers, check out the piece on George Mason's point guard in our bonus segment. Point guards. Point guards. No, no, point guard. The the oh. the hook is that he's the best short rebounder college basketball has seen in something like fifteen years, maybe longer. Really? Yeah, he's six foot two and he averages ten and a half rebounds a game. That's interesting. So he's like he's like Westbrookian he or uh, like Wayne Wadian. That is the point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about more DC area sports things. We'll talk about the surging Wizards and Capitals and whether this is the year that DC finally wins something for a change and Dan's traffic improves. <laughs> Join Slate Plus for $49 a year to hear all about Dan's traffic, whether it's going up or down. You'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. So six members of the Super Bowl-winning New England Patriots have now said they're going to stay home during the requisite visit to the White House. Um, Titan Martellus Bennett and safety Devin McCourty started it off. They both raised their fists during the national anthem earlier this season. And Bennett said, you just need to follow me on Twitter to understand why I'm not going to see Donald Trump. Uh, And McCourty told Time Magazine, the basic reason for me is I don't feel accepted in the White House with the president having so many strong opinions and prejudices. I believe certain people might feel accepted there while others won't. Chris Long is the only white Patriots player who has thus far announced he isn't going. He tweeted that he was skipping the trip in response to an open letter asking him not to go. And running back LeGarrette Blunt said, I don't feel welcome. Linebacker Dante Hightower and defensive lineman Alan Branch both said they weren't going, but it seems like maybe it has nothing to do with politics because sometimes players just don't go to the White House. Uh, meanwhile, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are studiously avoiding any discussions of their friendship with Trump. While Bob Kraft, the Patriots owner, had dinner with Trump and <laughs> Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club in Florida over the weekend. And based on what we're reading, is probably now in possession of extremely classified information about the North Korean nuclear program. Uh, Mike, that's a lot to wrap our heads around. What do you make of the Patriots, how they've responded, and how certain people have not responded? Well, if the Brooklyn Atlantics and Washington Nationals in 1865 could visit Andrew Johnson in the White House, given that, given given his reprehensible policies, I think that these Patriots. No, I don't. I don't think that Andrew Johnson was much of a precedent. Although the Nationals haven't really had a great year since then. Um, I think that. Okay, I, I'll say just. My opinion, which is not terribly exciting, which is that certainly they're right, and I think that it's good when athletes show a social conscious, and I think that especially Bennett and Long put some, uh, well, they were the most, they they put their thoughts out there in the most compelling way. McCourty. McCourty too? Yeah, McCourty too. Okay. Yeah. So they put their thoughts out there in the most compelling way, and that's fine. And then I check myself by saying, okay, let's measure this against when certain athletes uh, boycotted the, and not just skipped, because I think Brady skipped a visit to the Obama White House at one time. When he wins so many Super Bowls, you're going to get invited to a lot of White Houses. But when the um, the goalie on the Bruins skipped because of, you know, Tea Party type sentiment, I essentially had to say, well, you know, that's certainly his right. And that's, but that's pretty much as far as I take it. I think that it is a story that it doesn't surprise me that it's gotten so much coverage, but I don't know how much of it, how much it is of a uh, a weather vane to our current mood. It doesn't surprise me that you know roughly twelve percent of any 
uh, body with uh, pretty educated and a mostly black workforce would be really against President Trump. Uh, it's just that the the spotlight is on them. So I have I have I have no truck with any of the decisions made here. Although we're still four months away, presumably from when they might be coming. Yes. So I wouldn't be surprised if more people drop out in the meantime. I don't know. And by the way, that was an uncalled for shot at the Nationals because they did win the 1924 World Series, right? Which was since 1865. <laughs> yes, that was definitely they, uncalled for. Please give them their respect. Uh-huh. I, you know, I, I think I'm in a weird position because I actually, um, during the baseball season, Jonathan Papelbon was playing, a former Nationals closer was playing this vote for Trump anthem in the Nationals clubhouse repeatedly while media members were in there that you know included lyrics like, he's going to bring back country and get rid of rap and he's going to build that wall. And it felt to me like not that was he that shouldn't. well publicized. I never heard about that. I, I wrote about it after he was released. And low, probably, tra- low traffic on that post. Probably I should say sounds like a great song. <laughs> yeah, well, he also played another. Can I can I use a profanity on this podcast? I can't you may. He also played another song called "Titties and Beer," which um, mm-hmm. had some homophobic lyrics. A couple days after the team had a Pride night, and so my my sense was, of course, he can believe whatever he wants in private, but in public, I think it kind of ruins what sports are a little bit for people not that they shouldn't of course be honest but to make it divisive i think it kind of is troublesome like at this point i feel like people should they should just stop having sports teams at the white house because now every time it's going to be a referendum on whether you agree with you know the president's tax policy or whether you agree with you know the latest executive order I, Maybe you can say that Trump is a special case, but I can't imagine that if there's a liberal Democrat in office, the next time a baseball team goes, there won't be some people who find disagreement there. Trump is definitely a special case. And I think you're seeing that with the fact that this has become way more of an issue than it ever did under Obama, who is so widely loathed by the Tim Thomas types. You mentioned, Mike, that he was a Tea Party uh, partisan, the Bruins goalie which was represented by the fact that he capitalized a lot of nouns in uh, his letter explaining why he wasn't going to visit the White House. But this is, I mean, Tom Brady is a perfect example where in the past, I think a player of his stature, a celebrity like him, you know, the transcend sports could totally get away with the pose of saying, you know, I'm just here to talk about football. Nobody cares about my political opinions. You know, he put on Instagram a photo of the Julian Edelman catch, and he says, you know, people of every race, religion, ethnicity, political point of view, and lifestyle share a singular experience for a few hours and become one, like talking about the greatness of the Super Bowl and that experience. And that just now seems like a total banal cop-out and just a way to say something that doesn't offend anyone at a time when Maybe, maybe Dan Steinberg doesn't want to hear it, but I think a huge proportion of people in the world want people to like stand up and be counted and say which side they're on. And there's not – Brady just not saying anything is going to piss a lot of people off, a lot more people off than when he didn't go to the White House during the Obama administration. But- right, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to Brady. And – you know, he's one of the few people who really do- doesn't care just based on his position and uh, his his salary. I would say that, though, since the time of Michael Jordan and this Brady-esque, Jordan-esque uh, alighting of political commitment in favor of either the marketplace or whatever slipperiness you have going on in your personal life, just because of nichification of the media, realness has replaced that. So I do think that 
uh, stating your opinion in a compelling way, in a logical way. Pro or con, but these days it would seem mostly con against Donald Trump is the way to go. I also think it's different to be a person. There are so many ways to go to the White House that are uh, on the not not near the Papelbon end of the continuum, which is to say uh, a purposefully obnoxious. But this fits in with everything we know about Papelbon. He's 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 a head case and a headache. And so you know, poking someone in the eye and and playing offensive songs is a lot different from either saying I'm going to go because I don't want to be political. I'm going to go because it's uh, team bonding. I'm going to go, but if you ask me about my political views, I might say this is what I would do. I would go, uh, especially if I haven't been before. But I would also be forthright about how much I don't like the Trump presidency. But you know, I mean, General Kelly serves the Trump presidency. So can a uh, backup. So can a long snapper on the Patriots go to the White House without it, as, it essentially being an indictment of that person's soul and conviction. That's what. That's what I feel. I never. I never thought that any athlete appearing at the White House was endorsing the president who lives there or the president's policies. It just seemed to me like a kind of a ceremonial thing. And maybe it's kind of a silly thing. We've been reading a lot of these stories about the history of it. And it's not like this has been going on forever. I think the first hockey team to go was in the 90s under George Bush. And I think that- It became kind of a compulsory thing during the Reagan years. Maybe, but I I believe that it ramped up under George Bush II, whatever his his number was. What was it? 42? Is that 42? I think 43. 43? Okay. I believe under him and then under, yeah, that's that's right. And then under Obama, I think that they started inviting more and more teams and it became, you know, maybe overdone a little bit. But I just never, I just never saw it as a political act going and and smiling while the person, while the president made jokes that some speechwriter wrote. Yeah. Well, Claire McNair of The Ringer, I thought made a really good point, which is it's way less of a political act, I think, traditionally for the players than it is for the president, because the president gets this cheap PR when of making these like incredibly corny jokes and being photographed with like a team that everybody loves, except for the Patriots, I guess would be an exception to that. But it's just a way like how Obama would go on ESPN all the time and how, you know, Bill Clinton went into the broadcast booth to call a game with ESPN, Um, being kind of around sports and getting some of the reflected glory of these dudes is just a really smart and savvy PR play for whoever the president is. And so for that reason, I actually think not going and not going en masse and just not having any teams go actually makes a lot of sense. And I think if you're the backup long snapper, maybe there, there probably isn't a backup long snapper. If you are the First string long snapper. It's probably Julian Edelman, given everything we know about his skill set. <laughs> or the backup tight end. You know, I guess you're getting something out of it because it's cool to go to the White House. But you are being used. You're being co-opted. And Trump needs p- famous people to endorse him by saying, you know, the best he can do at this point is really just have people who are willing to stand next to him and have their photograph yeah. taken with him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, he also, like, the president also does, like, an Easter egg party, like, an Easter egg hunt on the White House. And, and, they and those invite, kids need to boycott his ass. No, but so they invite, like, famous people and famous athletes for that. And, like, John Wall and Bradley Beal from the Wizards have gone, and they've been, you know, pictured shooting pre- shooting baskets with Obama and making small talk. That, to me, feels more like the you kind should, of thing that you're talking about. I, you should ask them if they'll go to the Easter egg thing under Trump. I should. You're right. That's a good idea. I just I just never saw, like, that. that was kind of like a friendly thing that, almost implied endorsement to me. And I never saw the ceremonial White House visits in quite the same way. But 
Maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm, I think it's, it's interesting that you didn't like what Tom Brady wrote. I mean, it's definitely banal, but I think it's also probably true. Like, a lot of people are tuning into the Super Bowl as an escape from – it's not like we're not getting a, a good amount of political coverage right about now. And I think Yeah, it's true. In. It's just if I read it kind of as uh, in tandem with his refusal to answer – any of the direct yeah. questions about his it, relationship it that with, toe, with Trump. It is that toe touch into into he wants to he wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to have the hat, but then not comment on it. It's right. Annoying. If you're not if you're not going to comment, don't say that. That's fine. Just but I mean, nothing. you would say that probably what forty percent or forty five percent or whatever of people who watch the Super Bowl are actually Trump supporters, right? Maybe zero percent of people mm-hmm. listening to us right now, but a, a good number of the people that watch that game, for sure. Sure. And and I mean, I. I I, I wouldn't want him to turn that game into a, a referendum on. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't want that, that game to be some kind of overt support for for Trump by watching it. I don't think that I necessarily want these White House visits to become the reverse. I guess. Well, actually, I would say I agree with uh, Josh that it's sort of like a cloture vote. If it's uh, one or two people refusing, that doesn't mean much. But if 40 people band together, so if the majority of the team were to boycott, I think that would say something and I think that would deny Trump something. The other analogy would be like it's like a knee or some sort of silent protest during the national anthem. The de facto setting is to not participate. But if massive amounts of people do participate, that does say something. And then when you brought up uh, Clinton doing play-by-play, I think that's the bigger question, not just athletes being honored, but how much do the networks, you know, namely ESPN, but there are a bunch of other networks who do sports, extend the privileges to Trump that they did Obama? You know, let's pick a Final Four, let's have you in the booth to banter, and that's much more fraught during this presidency, I would say. First pitches, too, you would assume that it's first pitch season coming up, and will he yeah. do a first pitch, and will he go in the in the booth to banter afterwards? That's a great question. So a couple of things before we move on to our next segment. Number one, I cannot imagine any team that has a plausible chance of winning the NBA championship going to the Trump White House, the Cavs, the Warriors, the Spurs. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, number BYU two. BYU doesn't have a chance of winning the NBA <laughs> championship, right? Richard Jefferson posted where he posted on Instagram, you know, so honored to be the last team to visit yeah. the White House <laughs> yeah. in November. Well, and the Cubs wanted to get there under the wire, it seems. Um, The other thing that I don't think anyone has noted or pointed out. So when Michael Jordan um, didn't go to the White House in 1991, he never talked publicly about it. It did get a lot of attention at the time where people were like, oh, it's disrespectful. He was playing golf, sort of like how Brady was like, oh, I have to spend time with my family, but just like went to Gillette Stadium and like got his ankles taped. Instead, but it was just seen as like Jordan being too cool for school. But Craig Hodges wrote in a book that came out um, within the last couple of years, Hodges, very outspoken guy, went to the White House that year, was wearing a dashiki and handed, uh, he didn't hand it directly, but had a letter handed to George H.W. Bush, eight pages of about like, you need to do more to help in the inner city. Hodges writes in his book, there's one absence from the team on the visit that day during the finals against the Lakers when it was all but assured that we had the championship sewn up. Michael Jordan, who everyone thought did not have a political bone in his body, said in the locker room, I'm not going to the White House. Fuck Bush. I didn't vote for him. True to his word, Jordan didn't join us that day. That would have been Frank a pretty Hodges, strong, <laughs> greatest <laughs> journalist of his from era. From way downtown. <laughs> but, you know, that would have been a pretty strong message for Jordan to offer on the White House lawn afterwards when, when they do all those interviews that... 
you know, and in a way you would think that their platform would be bigger if they said some of these things in front of the political core yeah. over there at the White House. Yeah. Well, I think I think Mike is right. Well, we, sh- we should end here. But I think Mike is right that if the whole team did something, it would obviously make a, a big statement. If it's five or six guys, it, def- it makes a statement too. But um, the more, the bigger. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Back in October, Sports Illustrated's Lee Jenkins wrote a profile of the Oklahoma City Thunder's Russell Westbrook, in which he told the following anecdote. When Kendrick Perkins played center for the Thunder, he called teammates cupcake if he thought they were acting a little soft. Westbrook and Kevin Durant adopted the term in jest on the 4th of July when Durant announced he was leaving Oklahoma City for the Golden State Warriors. Westbrook posted a bittersweet pic on Instagram three plates of cupcakes topped by red and blue stars and sprinkles. Fast forward to Saturday night in Oklahoma City when Durant made his first return visit to the town he played in for eight of the first nine seasons of his career. You'll recall he played his first year in Seattle before the owners of that franchise abandoned that city like a bunch of dirty, rotten scones. But anyway... Durant was greeted by an impressive array of cupcake-themed body paint and posters and chants. Nevertheless, he scored 34 points in the Warriors' 130-114 to win over the Thunder, while Westbrook scored 47 in a losing effort, and Steph Curry and Draymond Green wore cupcake t-shirts for their post-game interviews. Mike, what did you make of this kind of bakery theme in Oklahoma City? I would guess that Kevin Durant, if you were to uh, monitor his uh, dopamine levels or galvanic skin response or anything that showed how much stress was actually being caused by cupcake chants and, you know, some dude who uh, trucked in from Stillwater holding a mean sign, it would approach nil. This is the con- This is the cost of uh, moving to the better team. He knew it would happen. And I can't imagine in any way that it would bother him. It was just a perhaps fun, meaningless sideshow spectacle where there's a venting. The old team has to go through the stations of grief. That's fine. Durant's mother said people were angry at him. That's part of it. Sorry, mom. Uh, Why are you going to the road game? No problem. But it was uh, almost a consequence-free, yeah, venting, an almost consequence-free exhumation of the demons. And now uh, Durant will just have to wait till he plays the Cavs in the final for us to say if it was worth it or totally unfair. Yeah, I thought that his mom's comments were interesting. She said that I guess some of the insults crossed the line and stuff that I probably wouldn't want to say here, um, but calling him the snake and the coward and all that kind of stuff. I, a snake. A snake, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that, to me, there are so few reasons to watch random regular season games in, in February. And I think ridiculous things like this, or like, do you, do you remember when the Wizards, sorry, everything goes back to the Wizards for me, but the, the Wizards dressed in all black for their game before the Celtics. Yeah, that was great. The funeral game, stuff like that is it's awesome. And, you know, Durant had maybe a slow start, but he played pretty well at the end and, and 
maybe if you're the Oklahoma City fans, you don't necessarily want to get him riled up by chanting coward at him, would be my guess. It was a great moment for journalism because this just came from a random small detail in a Sports Illustrated story and became this mass movement. It's hard to really think of something analogous where fans just pick up on something so weird and it becomes this just huge arena-wide display of like, cupcakes. (laughs) I mean, I went to the World Series game when it was the Phillies and the Rays, whatever uh, year that was. And the fans in Philly were chanting Eva at Evan Longoria. This was the height of Desperate Housewives. That was sort of something that comes to mind, but it's not it's not quite analogous. Um, That's more that's more genderly problematic than this. Cupcakes are everyone loves cupcakes. This was the rare case, I think, of something where, you know, I guess you could argue that saying that someone is soft is a, a little bit uh, dumb because what does that even mean? But this did seem like the cupcake stuff, at least, is in the realm of harmlessness. It was just very funny. And I enjoyed it. Congratulations. Although, to be fair to Phillies fans, it's long been a tradition among them to simply drop the ends off the names of opposing players. So they would they would hail when Stan Musial came to town. They would uh, they would chant "sta sta" at him. Just just it's not it's possibly not sexist. Seriously, just want to throw that out there. <laughs> Is he no, being serious? I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> Great audience for Mike here. <laughs> what did you yeah. make of what Andre Iguodala said when um, there was talk before the game about Durant hiring extra security to go into the arena? And Iguodala says, for me, it's just another game. I mean, if I'm supposed to die over basketball, I'm supposed to die. So I guess it's over with, but I'm not going to change my approach. If we didn't play basketball, they wouldn't give a damn about who we were as people. No one would invest any time in us and who we are, but I guess we give them an outlet or an escape from their lives. They're emotionally attached to us, but when we do things that aren't in their best interest, there's an action and a reaction. That's the case tomorrow. This is kind of the world we live in right now. Wow, there's a heavy both. There. Yeah, that's not exactly fan friendly, yet also is some sort of uh, pretty ordinary observations about human nature, right? Yeah, when I mean, we disappoint I disappoint them; they get upset. <laughs> I think to say that this is. Um, where we are right now is incorrect. That's where we've always been in yeah, terms of yeah. sports. But I do think there's truth, and it's worth just pointing out, even though it's obvious, that there's obviously no reason to just support whatever random dude happens to be wearing the Thunder jersey and for like the fans to be like super down with Jeremy Grant now and to hate Kevin Durant, who gave them you know eight years of great play. So... Good reminder from Andre. Well, I'm, I'm a, a little sympathetic to the Oklahoma City fans, though. I mean, I, like, I, I wouldn't personally advocate calling him a coward or all of that, but I, I did think it was – I wish that he hadn't left. I wish that if he had left, he hadn't left for a powerhouse team. I, I wish that he had taken a more difficult path, and maybe that's mean or uncaring of me, but I I would have liked to see him – I mean, it, feel, it feels like he took an easy way out a little bit to me, and maybe that's not fair, but that's what it feels like to me. So Westbrook- Coward's way out. <laughs> coward's way out. Not a coward necessarily, but it's an easier way. You know, when you join like yeah. an MVP and a team that's gone to the finals twice in a row, that's easier. It is an easier way. This much is clear. And obviously the fans are going to be pissed at him. This was 
incredibly unsurprising what the response was in the bigger picture. But the fact that it was cupcake-based was extremely surprising. But Westbrook is an interesting case because he's a guy who, based on everything that's been written about him, Sam Anderson did a really good profile for the New York Times Magazine, the, you know, the Lee Jenkins story. Just if you meet him or just in the, I guess also in the context of like journalist and athlete, just Westbrook seems like a much bigger uh, jerk than Durant does. But obviously, if you're a fan, you're going to, you know, elevate and valorize the guy who just based on the way that his contract works, you know, is going to stay in Oklahoma rather than the guy who left. But he um, also... He but also the, big, the bigger jerk is what the fans like. It's called the guy who's driven as opposed to the guy who's uh, passive. I mean, those were descriptions that were always laid at the feet of Westbrook and Durant. And Durant in the offseason made that comment about how grateful to play for a team um, with a bunch of players who are selfless and enjoy the game in its purest form. That was... <laughs> you know, I mean, what's that saying about Westbrook? I, I don't know what, how he plays it. Maybe he's not selfless. Maybe he doesn't play it in his purest form, but he's a badass. And I think that... As an Oklahoma City fan, I can see why this whole thing would just make you love him even more. For sure. That's true. Mm-hmm. And they both ended up eating at that steakhouse on Saturday. Mahogany. In separate In separate areas. Mahogany. I never knew that Oklahoma City had such a well-regarded steakhouse. And also a haunted hotel. They have like one of every good thing. <laughs> one of every good thing. So let's talk about what's going on in Madison Square Garden where on Wednesday night, uh, Knicks legend Charles Oakley was brought out of the world's f- most famous arena in handcuffs <laughs> after getting into a confrontation with non-beloved Knicks owner James Dolan. On Friday, Dolan said on the radio that he was banning Oakley from the garden and insinuated that the burly 1990s era power forward has a problem with alcohol, which is kind of Dolan's go-to move when anyone crosses him. Uh, finally, on Sunday, Dolan surrounded himself with enough ex-Knicks to field a, a good but perhaps not championship caliber roster. Uh, <laughs> he was sitting between Latrell Sprewell and Bernard King, Larry Johnson, Bill Bradley. Maybe this would be a championship team. Yeah, uh, right. All the, all the, how many shots are there to go around? Kenny you Walker. Give me a distributor. Vin Baker. Oh, God. Oh, Herb God. Williams. Vin- Gerald Wilkins. Oh, Mike, what are, what are your thoughts? And let's note that uh, Dolan is a recovering alcoholic. So there is that tendency to see alcoholism in everyone else. Uh, it's been written that it, how shameful of all people to use that as a cudgel would be the former alcoholic. But I find that people with substance abuse, you know, always see any use of substances in others as problematic. And maybe it was for Oakley said he didn't drink in the garden. He drank beforehand. Let's not let Oakley off the hook. I mean, whatever security did to say, what are you doing here? And it seems like the answer was sitting and watching a basketball game. So that was wrong. Who drew first blood? It was Oakley. He put his gigantic hands on the tiny security forces who are actually big burly men, but not compared to uh, Oakley. And like the uh, car wash owner he once was, just wiped the floor with them until the situation was reversed. It should also be noted that the head of security was fired after this. So this whole, uh, the, the MSG going for, it was entirely Oakley's fault, but they, you know, jettisoned the guy who I guess was was uh, ultimately responsible for ejecting Oakley. But the fact is that Oakley can, I mean, this would be the most popular t- uh, spe- fan special at halftime. Oakley will be allowed to pummel Dolan at half court mercilessly for 12 minutes. That would be the most popular thing to uh, Knicks fans. So therefore, no one's going to look at what Oakley did and find any fault with what he did. But it seems like there is fault. Um, and the last thing I would say is I've read some 
critiques of this, taking it beyond this was a weird, another weird uh, issue within Dolan's tenure and trying to portray it as something of a breaking point. I, I just don't see that it's a breaking point at all. I think the essential dynamics dynamic with the Knicks is there, which is that Dolan's a bad owner. He'll almost always make bad choices and then no one that can tell him otherwise. How does this change that? If we're going to fault Oakley, which I was surprised you took the early contrarian uh, attack here, but if we're going to fault him at all, I think he said in a New York Times interview, he, he sort of insinuated that he might want to poison Dolan recently. So that's, <laughs> I can see why you'd be a little bit nervous if you were there. But I mean, the thing that's just baffling to me is it just felt like the Knicks throughout this entire incident have been going out of their way to make it worse. Just the state, the first statement they put out, the second statement they put out, the Dolan radio interview, um, the permanent ban, everything they're doing is just punching themselves in the face because he's a symbol of when they were winning and now they've been losing for 20 years and he can i mean you just have to let that guy go and call you a bad guy and call you a bad owner and threaten to poison you you just have to take it all so yeah i'm uh glad that you said the word symbol because i think this whole situation is not about what anyone did in this particular incident like people are not reacting to anything that Oakley did this time. They're reacting to what he stands for and the fact that he's a reminder of an era when the Knicks weren't pushovers and he symbolizes this sort of badass attitude about, um, you know, when the Knicks didn't take any guff from anyone. And Dolan symbolizes everything that's gone wrong with the franchise since. And Dolan seems aware of the power of symbols, um, the fact that His response to this was essentially to surround himself with other legends of the franchise to try to get some of their, like, you know, reflected goodwill. He's just doesn't – there's just something fundamentally off. There's always something fundamentally off with him. And he has this kind of man of the people shtick. And when you kind of represent yourself that way but you're just, like, off by a couple of degrees, it's worse because he just – fundamentally, I think, doesn't understand his fan base. And I think a lot of it is what Dan said, that he is not willing to put somebody like Charles Oakley above him or understand that no matter what he does, the fans will never feel the way they do about him, the way they do about this like guy who was not like a, a Hall of Famer, but is just somebody that fans have a lot of residual affection for. Yeah, and I think for him to oh, say yeah. for him to say that nothing would make me happier than to see Charles Oakley at center court and being honored, but he, we need him to address his behaviors first before we can do that. Like, dude, just put him at center court and honor him. Anything that you do at this point, I mean, you're just making it worse with all these. He needs to address these behaviors and all these insinuations. It's just, I mean, it's just a poor PR strategy. If nothing else, you're not going to win that fight. James Dolan is terrible at PR. He probably thinks he's good at PR because he has a very active PR strategy. But they're always trying. They always lash out against journalists who do their job as journalists. And they try to control the narrative and they never do. And they just continue to make missteps. And in fact, James Dolan never really accomplished much in his life. He's just a scion of uh, of his father, Charles Dolan, who started Cablevision. And, you know, the, the good NBA owners seem to be, you know, occasionally there are the guys, uh, maybe Jerry West or the uh, Bus family is the exception to this. But it seems like a lot of the young tech owners are the guys who understand market dynamics and are aggressive and wise. And Dolan's on the other side of this. And I remember a couple years ago, there was one one of the cable vision bundling uh, marketing ploys 
was to like bundle uh, your phone and your cable together, whatever. They had some name for this. And everyone within the Knicks organization and the company said, this was, this was James Dolan's idea. He came up with it. It was like an obvious idea that everyone could have possibly thought you own these two things that people can't live without. Let's bundle them together. Great. So the guy's a genius. And he, he's exactly the kind of guy who would think that, well, Phil Jackson, he's even though disengaged, he's going to be the guy who solves our basketball problems. And he's make similar He's made similar bad decisions as regard the Rangers, even though the Rangers have had better success. But, you know, to me, the but all Knicks. So what it goes to say is that all Knicks fans, like all sports fans want is to win. And then their ire shows they don't say necessarily we're not winning, but it really uh, flares up when something like Oakley happens. To me, the worst thing the Knicks did all year was everything around the Derrick Rose signing, not just the fact of signing this guy, but you know, that that sexual uh, assault trial or civil trial in California was really disturbing and they didn't handle that well. But, you know, remember, Knicks fans weren't on them for that because at that point they were hopeful and they thought, well, maybe, uh, Uh, Rose can get through this, and he did, and he'll have a good season. Well, he got through it, and he had a bad season. So really, all fans ever want is a winning team, and they'll excuse all the crap if you're winning, and they'll rightly, in this case, jump on you if you make missteps when you're a loser. I will end by saying this. Charles Oakley, all-time great Washington wizard. Very disappointed in Dan for missing the obvious DC reference. I posted photos of him wearing his wizard's uniform last week. Confession, that's the only reason that I remember he played for the Washington Wizards. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Pine City Dragons from Pine City, Minnesota are 14 and 6 on the air, which is not bad. They're tied for second in their conference, third place in their section, in position for the high school playoffs in Minnesota. But apart from all that, they might be the most interesting team in America. As Ben Cohen wrote a few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, Pine City is the basketball team that never takes a bad shot. Simple arithmetic dictates that the most valuable and most efficient shots in basketball are three-pointers and layups, while mid-range two-pointers, you know, those 15-footers, they are the least efficient shots in the game. Under coach Kyle Allen, Pine City has taken that to heart. Last year, the Dragons set the Minnesota state record for three-pointers made, and as of this January 30th, Pine City had taken 59% of their shots from three and just 4.2% from mid-range. Those numbers are crazy high and crazy low, respectively, compared to NBA and college teams. The Houston Rockets, for instance, lead the NBA by taking 46% of their shots from three-point range, which is by far and away the highest in NBA history, but still not close to the 59% of Pine City. Joining us now during his study hall period, the high school... uh, social studies teacher slash coach of the Pine City Dragons, Kyle Allen. Hey, Kyle, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on today. So where did you get the idea to only shoot threes and layups? It's been an evolving thought process, something that we have worked on um, over the years and and something that we've continued to implement in different ways. Um, 
it really kind of took off for me and, and took a new formation. Um, a few years ago, I went and visited a f- old friend of mine, um, Jack Taylor at Grinnell College. Jack set the NCAA record for points scored in a game at Grinnell. And I went down and stayed with him and the coaches for a couple days and kind of learned about their system and learned about the way that they view numbers and how they use those numbers to implement it into their system. Um, so we took a lot of that and we combined it with lots of things that we took from other coaches and we just continue to try to evolve it into something that works for us and works for our program and, and at the same time makes sense and is a fun and exciting way to play the game. When you say fun, I guess that's the, the first question is how did your players respond to it? Is this, this is what they want to do? I, I think so. I, I've yet to meet a kid that doesn't want to shoot a three. So I think they, uh, they enjoy it. And, and the good thing for us is um, they want to come in and they want to work on it. So it's a lot easier to get a kid to come in and get up a couple hundred threes and work on that uh, than it is for uh, to come in and, and, and work on post moves. Not that post moves are important. Uh, we just find that our kids are more willing to come in and get some shots up than they are uh, to do some of the latter stuff. It does seem, it seems logical, but it also seems to be a strategy of diminishing returns. In other words, if your opponents know you're never going to take a shot from inside the arc that's not also in the paint, they could sag off of you, they could adjust their defenses, or do you not see that? Are the opponents still buying up fakes uh, from 12? I guess the next question is, <laughs> does your team actually attempt up fakes from, for 12-foot shots and then drive? Uh, well, we, we don't touch the ball in that area a ton. I mean, a little bit, uh, it kind of depends on what we're running. Um, but we have some kids that can hit the mid range. You know, we never, we don't never shoot it. Um, so hopefully that didn't you say you shot bit. it like four per four percent of the time and that was too high for you. Well, it's a little high. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we just feel like the best two spots to take shots are at the rim and in the lane and at the three point line. And so, we feel that we are being purposeful in terms of taking shots at those two spots if they are going to give us back the highest return. So this is a re- this is a really interesting issue, and it's been you know in the NBA, three point attempts have gone up from three point one percent of shots for NBA teams in 1980, and now it's you know more than thirty percent. It's you know exponential. And yet, you see with the Rockets this year under Mike D'Antoni, they're up to 46%. And it's still not mathematically sound what they're doing. You know, you talk about looking at the numbers, Kyle, but um, the numbers are pretty simple. The three is uh, worth more than two. And it just seems like there's convention or it just kind of feels wrong. Like something is holding teams back where they're still not willing to shoot as many threes as logic would dictate. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, we've tried to, to make it work for our system. You know, I, it's all about percentages. And for us, we want to be on the side of the 50% plus percentage. And we feel that this puts us on that side of it. Um, and so then, therefore, puts us in the best chance to, to, to win a game. I mean, when you're talking about a small a small facet of the game, like the offensive end of the court. Um, you know, that's just one part of, of what we're doing. Um, but on that end, we feel like this puts us in the best spot to, to succeed. Can I, can I ask another question about your kids, which is kind of what interests me the most. I'm curious yeah. if there are kids who 
might play more um, in a different system who, who might not make sense for your system, whether they're too big or they can't shoot it as well or whatever. Other kids who you feel like this is kind of keeping off the court? Um, no, because we really talk about roles. And like I said, you know, the offensive end is one small part of it. We probably spend more time talking about defense and rebounds than anything else. Because of the system that we play in, we really put a strain on both those ends. We're getting up shots quick. And so that means we are playing more defensive possessions as well. So every kid has a role on the team, and it's it's specific, and it's what is best for them to help the team in general. Um, and our kids have really bought in. And we're talking about high school sports, where our our reason for doing this is helping to create great young men. And that's really what we want to do here. Our goal is to win games, but our purpose is to to make great young men. And so what a great idea for us to be able to, to talk to them about being something, having, being a part of something that's bigger than themselves. Great, great young men who can shoot the three. We, we have, we, well, we think we have a lot of them. Uh, (laughs) You know, we, we, we like to put lots of shooters on the court and, um, and we have a green light. So if a kid gets an open look, they're supposed to shoot it. So if Dan said he's most interested in the effect on the kids, not me. I'm interested in strategy. I want to treat them as cogs. Um, and so, although I will quote, I'm on your website, program purpose, educational, program goal, win games. All right. All right. I believe you. Here's, here's my question. Um, you say you almost never possess the ball inside the arc that's not in the key. Does that mean you don't drive to the hoop from outside the arc, that you'll only do entry passes? Do you not have a driving point guard? Um, how has it affected you know, that part of the team? And then I have a follow-up. Yeah, no, we, uh, we definitely try to penetrate. Uh, it's a lot of what we do. Um, we want to try to get the ball to the middle. Uh, and we just feel we can get to the ball in the middle in different ways. And maybe we have to be a little unconventional because of some of the restrictions we have with with the size of, of our kids. And so we work hard on penetration. We work hard on cut-throughs. Um, and we work hard on offensive rebounds. And so those are three ways that we can get the ball to the middle uh, without having a dominant guy posting up and having his back to the basket. We should note that you don't have any players who are taller than 6'2", right? So you might be running a different system if you had players of different heights. Yeah, maybe. In our in our current rotation, we have a, a minimum 10-man rotation for every game. Um, and right now, the tallest player in that rotation is probably 6'3". Um, but he shoots threes just like the rest of them. Um, <laughs> so. But you don't find that uh, the point guard's ability to drive is helped by the defense having to respect the fact that he could hit a shot from, you know, eight feet away? No, I think that it helps us that they think he can hit a shot from the three-point line. Um, okay. And if, if, if we get to the middle and we're able to draw the defense, then that's awesome. Um, and that's part of our goal. Um, so we, we really want to get the ball to the middle. Um, like I said, we just try to do it in different ways. Cool. So I am a, a huge fan and endorser of this system and the logic behind it, especially given um, and the fact that you don't have like a bunch of 6'10 dudes manning the middle on your team. It seems like it works for you. The question that I have is, you know, it might not make sense to do this for kids in middle school or lower school because at a certain level, you want to be, uh, you know, about teaching and about how uh, – you know, how to shoot a mid-range shot and 
how to learn all of the skills that you need to learn to um, you know, be a good basketball player. Do you think that high school is a level at which just totally abandoning a part of the game kind of makes sense and you know, if it gives you the best chance to win games? So for us, we have um, concepts that we run all the way down to our youth levels. Um, and so we try to implement those concepts all the way through. We have a growth plan. We have goals for each grade level of where we think the kids should be able to be at uh, based on their skills and what we want them to accomplish. So that helps the coaches in terms of focusing in on what we want at that grade level and then helps the kids because they're then on the track that is going to take them to be a player in our program someday. I'm looking at your home court. The dragon's color is green. And I will describe this for the listeners. Uh, center court and the areas between the arcs, so the areas, you know, 40 feet from the basket, that is just wood, like a blonde wood. But the paint is not painted. It is the same color of blonde wood. The only painted portions of the court are the areas inside the arc, but outside what we call the paint, and that's green. Now, my question is, Was did the court look like this before you adopted your strategy? Or is this a visual reminder? The green part is where you don't shoot from, guys. <laughs> we, uh, we were fortunate to get our court redone two years ago. Uh, ah. So this was something that we had <laughs> talked about and um, something that we wanted to, to implement. And uh, it wasn't anything that I fought in terms of a plan that was proposed. Um, I thought it was a great idea and it, uh, it really fed into what we're trying to do. Kyle, thank you so much and good luck to the Pine City Dragons for the rest of the season. I appreciate it, guys. Really appreciate you having me on today. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls and Pine City Dragons. Not a bad nickname. Probably better than replacement level high school nickname. Dan is nodding. Minnesota has... Some better nicknames than the Dragons. No offense to Kyle Allen. I the like Dragons the- are, of course, the opposing team in Teen Wolf. Who the, uh, Teen Wolf played the Dragons like eight times that year. Um, that's an important uh, point that it, I was at the tip of all of our brains. And in Philadelphia, they refer to them as the Dragos. <laughs> that's good. The end that's the, good. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the Moorhead Spuds I liked. Because not only are they the Moorhead Spuds, but they have a mascot named Spuddy. Spuddy, the potato mascot, I think might be the only potato mascot named Spuddy in all of America. Dan? <laughs> Not familiar with another. Yeah. Yeah. Look it up. It's a very interesting looking character. Spuddy, the Moorhead, Minnesota mascot. Mike Pasca, what is your Spuddy? So I've returned from the Netherlands, and I've been thinking about sports in the Netherlands, even though I... I missed the big corfball tournament at the Ziggo Dome. Yeah, I know. Uh, just one stray observation. The 
biggest sport in the winter in the Netherlands, and this is huge, is speed skating. Oh, they love their speed skating. It dominates the sports pages. And the biggest sport in the summer, aside from soccer slash football, which everyone loves, is hockey, or as they, as we would call it, field hockey, but as they would just call it hockey. Their men's team is great. Their women's team is even better. You'd think they might be good at ice hockey, given these two facts. No, they barely ever play. I'll just throw that out there. You might want to unify those two loves and be good at ice hockey. Then we get to basketball, and I saw some basketball courts around town. The Dutch basketball tradition is not a long one, and in fact, in 2012, it was announced that the Netherlands team would be dissolved for two years because the national Federation uh, wasn't willing to invest money in it. They just kind of committed temporary suicide. But then they came back and uh, qualified for the Euro basketball tournament and I think made it to the, like, the semifinals of some tournament, calling it the miracle of 2014. Now, of course, you know, the greatest Dutch basketball player of all time was. Come on, we're, guys. You we're know. stumped. We're stumped. Oh, no, you know it. It's. Uh, Oh, uh, Rick uh, Smith. Oakley era. Yes. Rick Smith's the Marist Red Fox. And during the time that Rick Smith was a dominant player for the Pacers, the, uh, there was always a sponsor on the rebounding statistics and it would be the Dutch boy in the paint numbers. And my friend Eric Cantor always, because that always showed up during a Pacers game. They always, he thought it was just named after Rick Smith's, the Dutch boy in the paint numbers. The second greatest Dutch basketball player of all time was a guy that I should have known about, but I haven't. His name is Sven Nater. And his story is amazing. We'll pick it up. Uh, this is this is uh, in the in the voice of Bill Walton, though not literally. I'm I'm not going to do terrible. I'm not. No, that's uh, that's not Bill Walton. That's uh, that's Barkley. I'm not going to do a Bill Walton impersonation. <laughs> but this is the following is from a transcript of remarks delivered by Bill Walton as presenter of Swen Nader and the NBA Retired Players Association Legend of Basketball Brunch in 2004, and he says, unlike some of the other legends honored here today, Larry Bird, James Worthy, Bill Russell, Kareem. Sven Nader did not grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Born on the edge 54 years ago in Holland, Sven was a product of a broken home. As the young family's economic condition deteriorated, Sven, the middle of three children, and his older sister Renee were dumped at the door of a local orphanage when he was six. Of the other 60 children at the orphanage, Sven and his sister were the only ones whose parents were still living. He was lonely. He was isolated. Bill Walton's words. He had literally no contact with his parents, who settled in Southern California. Some friends of his parents found out about this, and this is Bill Walton again. As can only happen in America and Los Angeles, Swen and his sister were reunited with their parents on the Hollywood set of This Is Your Life. Swen's parents were lured to the show on false pretenses as members of the audience when they were unexpectedly called up on stage. Imagine their surprise when their two young children, with whom they'd had no contact for years, came walking out of a makeshift windmill specially constructed for the reunion. So it was wow. not an existing windmill. Wow. Now I should note, I should fact check this a little. I'm not saying that that uh, most of the story is true, but it wasn't This Is Your Life. It was apparently, according to uh, Wikipedia, a show called It Could Be You, which was a precursor to This Is Your Life. Now I only raise this because further in the Bill Walton recitation of the Swen Nader story, some facts come up that may be called into question. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll telescope here. 
What happens to uh, Swen Nader is he's tall. He grows really tall. He's 6'10". A high school teacher's like, we got to get you to play basketball. He's bad at first, then gets better. John Wooden sees him and his, uh, his community college team tearing it up against the UCLA freshman, okay? Signs him. Swen Nader becomes Bill Walton's backup at UCLA. Here is Bill Walton talking about this. Big Swen spent most of his time at UCLA pumping iron and thinking up one-liners to be delivered daily at practice. Despite never playing in games for the Bruins, who never lost a game while he was a member of the team, Swen, like all of John Wooden's students, developed both on and off the court. Now, I only bring this up because other statistics say that he may have played, just never started. But the point is, here's a guy maybe rarely got into blowouts, But then he goes on to be a professional basketball player, mostly with the ABA and then with the NBA, and is the only person in basketball history to lead both the ABA and the NBA in rebounds. He averages over his career in both leagues 12 and a half points and 11 and 11.6 rebounds. He's a double-double guy in the NBA and ABA after never playing in college. Such was the team. And then we should also note that Sven Nader, I guess never playing, but, you know, working really hard, went to work for Costco, where Wikipedia said he became the sporting goods assistant buyer, but other articles uh, say that he was even much higher up in the Costco hierarchy, and this is why Bill Walton honored him as a uh, legends of the NBA retired players. Never knew about the guy, Swen Nader. All right, I got uh, Swen Nader's college stats for you, Mike. 71-72 season, 6.7 points, 4.8 rebounds a game, 72-73, down to 3.2 points and 3.3 rebounds a game. Yes. And so, okay, so this calls in the question, uh, Bill Walton's recollection. But let's also note that in college, he never, in one season, he never, um, his rebounding totals were always lower than they were in the NBA, except when he was uh, 33, playing for the San Diego Clippers. Oh, I'll also give you the last line of this Bill Walton speech about him, which is the very definition of a mixed message or a left-handed compliment. You ready? Swen Nader, you are indeed Mr. Clipper. <laughs> That's good. Dan, what is your spuddy? My spuddy is also involves someone who played for the Clippers. Are you ready? I'm ready. Josh, the NBA All-Star Game is this weekend. And, and do you know which event I'm looking forward to the most? The skills challenge? No, it's the three-point contest. And specifically, it's Nick Young who will be competing in the three-point contest. Now, I have some history with Nick here. I was uh, at Madison Square Garden the night that Nick was drafted by the Wizards. And I talked that night with a director of a documentary about Nick's high school basketball career. This director compared Nick's personality to those of Muhammad Ali and Magic Johnson. He said, Washington has no idea what they've got now in Nick Young. No one knows. He's one of the most wonderful, joyous people you will ever meet in your life. And he will make everyone forget about their problems and just enjoy watching him and the Wizards. It is a gift. Never really worked out here in Washington for Nick. And that was almost 10 years ago. Since then, Nick Young has launched multiple memes. He's gotten engaged and unengaged to a pop star. He launched a clothing line called Most Hated. He became a tabloid regular, and he actually played more NBA games than Gilbert Arenas ever did. He's also never lost his smile. He still had it a couple weeks ago when he was here at Verizon Center. I was trying to interview him, and he ran away in the middle of the interview and ran up to the concourse, and I had to go find him six hours later in the locker room. Um, and somehow, he's now having like perhaps the best season of his career on a typically terrible team in a year when he was supposed to be out of the NBA entirely. Nick Young is definitely going to retire at some point soon, and he probably will not be remembered as a giant winner in the NBA. 
but he will be remembered as a ridiculous entertainer, which is why I'm going to be rooting for him on Saturday night in that three-point contest. Kind of heart, sweet. heartfelt a little That is bit. sweet. He had one good playoff game with the Clippers where he like scored a shit ton of points and they won the game. I think that was the only time that he was in the playoffs because he's also played for Philadelphia and, and the Wizards and now the Lakers in their pit of despair. What's the opposite of a victory cigar? A defeat cigar. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. like Nick, though. And, and honestly, I don't, I don't know if he lived up to the Muhammad Ali Magic Johnson billing, but he has an amazing smile and an amazing personality. <laughs> and he makes you happy to be around him. He does. <laughs> it's hard to make me happy, too, Josh. Nick it is. makes me happy. Josh, does, does your spuddy involve a former Clipper? does not. It does involve Pine City, Minnesota, though. haven't heard enough about Pine City yet today. I was looking at the Wikipedia page for Pine City High School and you found guys that both are on this Wikipedia thing. Found that among the school's most famous alums is Carla Nelson, a bodybuilder who won the AAU Miss America title in 1993. You know Carla. A belated congratulations to her for that 1993 AAU Miss America title. She is married to a guy named Al Blake, and they live in Pine City to this day, or so the internet tells us. Al Blake was a professional wrestler, and he performed under the name Vladimir Petrov. During the Cold War, there was a huge market, or at least a market, for bad guy Russian wrestlers, and Al Blake played the role with a plum. His nickname was the Russian Assassin, and his finishing move was the Russian Sickle, which feels a bit on the nose, but that's just me. I was never really into wrestling, so this dude's career is new to me, but I did find a video on YouTube, and Al Blake is an enormous a muscled individual in a CCCP singlet. Here's a clip from one of his matches. Introducing to my left from Russia, 297 pounds, Vladimir Petrov. That's an awesome individual, ladies and gentlemen. Magnum TA and Jim Ross with you ringside here on UWF Wrestling. And this man, Vladimir Petrov Magnum, is scheduled or is listed at 300 pounds, and I have said on other occasions, he looks larger than that in any event. This man is so awesome, I see no excess body fat whatsoever. No, we're definitely looking 300 pounds of solid wrecking machine there. There's no excess fat on this man's body, and he was sent here from the USSR for one purpose, and one purpose only. That was to destroy all the American wrestlers that he could. Those announcers kind of sound like communist sympathizers to me. I don't know about you guys. So our pal Dave McKenna wrote one of my all-time favorite uh, Slate pieces back in 2004, Upon the Death of Ronald Reagan, in which he interviewed a whole bunch of Americans who played Russian wrestlers at the height of the Cold War, in which they thanked Reagan for giving them the opportunity. Business was good with Reagan. That was Nikolai Volkov. I voted for him twice. I wasn't a political guy, said Nikita Koloff, but Ronald Reagan's policies were good for wrestling. Ivan Koloff says that the end of the Cold War took the edge off his character. Democracy is good for the world, he says, but it was bad for business. It's unclear at this point how our relationship with Russia is going to go and whether conditions will be right for the likes of Vladimir Petrov to make a comeback. But if you see a guy in Pine City, Minnesota, you know, lingering beyond the three-point line, wearing a CCCP singlet, don't be alarmed. He's just getting ready for his country in case he's called into action. Josh, I was going to say, watching old YouTube clips of random wrestlers I've never heard of sounds like a very Dave McKenna thing to do. <laughs> so I'm glad that you started talking about him at some point. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. 
When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thank you to four-timer, classic contrarian voice, Dan Steinberg, for joining us this week. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>